All right. Well, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, thank you for bearing with us. We're having a few, you know, in this new, I don't know, so new, but this world we're in now, there's some technical difficulties every now and then. So we appreciate your patience. Um, we are really, uh, we're going to give it an extra 10 minutes to make sure we are able to fully um, have this discussion. And I don't know if anyone knows, but I was a policy wonk in a past life. And it's good to have all these policy folks taking the lead on it. Um, on this topic of Medicaid redetermination, disenrollment, and health equity. And um, I am going to turn it over to, obviously, our future Dr. Mia Keys. Um, but before that, I just want to make two quick announcements. One, um, we will have our annual summit on health disparities April 17th and 18th. Um, and so looking forward to seeing you all there. And we'll put a link to registration. Um, two, a little housekeeping. If you have questions, please put them in the Q&A box below. And if you just kind of want to put your comments or participate a little more actively, go to the chat. And without further ado, I'll take it up, send it over to our own advisory board member and past 40 under 40 winner, Mia Keys. Really, as always, so very happy to be here, Brandon. Thank you so very much. I'm Mia Keys, as, as Brandon mentioned, and um, I also work for Hologic, the women's health and innovation company. And you can imagine that for all of us on this call, I'm, I too am a policy wonk, as Brandon knows. Um, this, this conversation is not only timely, but really very necessary as we're approaching the end of the public health emergency period with respect to COVID-19. And so we're talking today about Medicaid redetermination, disenrollment, as well as the impact with respect to and the emphasis on health equity. We have joined with us today Dr. Lydia Isaac, who serves as the Vice President of Health Equity and Policy um, at the National Urban League. She also holds a joint appointment as uh, faculty at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, and she's in the past served as an associate research professor through GWU, which is where I, I am uh, currently in school and pursuing my doctorate. And while she was there, she was executive director of the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation funded health policy research scholars program. So I'm really excited for the work that she brings in, in that space. She's also worked in the past in local as well as state government and, and as in academia. So bringing all of that to bear on a conversation on racial and and ethnic health disparities, on social determinants, on neighborhood environmental factors, and how all of that matters in the research and policy environment of today. Uh, she has received her, her master's from Harvard School of Public Health and her doctorate at her current place, Johns Hopkins. So thank you so very much for being with us today, Dr. Isaac. We also have with us Ariana Muckerman, who serves as the Senior Director of Health Policy at Centene Corporation. And for those of you who know NMQF, you know that NMQF and Centene work, work jointly together on, on many different things toward very common interests to ensure, especially in this, in this conversation, that there's continued um, emphasis on Medicaid and specifically on Medicaid continuous coverage, which is where Ariana comes in. She leads Centene on cross-product and public health issues in general. Um, and to, to today's conversation, um, especially focused on the unwinding um, of, of Medicaid, particularly in the wake of COVID. Uh, she also focuses on interoperability issues, on health equity, as well as behavioral health. And she received her, uh, her master's in public health from another Washington, from Washington U University uh, in St. Louis. Thank you so very much, Ariana, for joining us today, for sure. 
And then last but certainly not least, we have um, a true OG in the game about two decades in this in this game with respect to not game, but really in this mission work with respect to health and um, ensuring that people who are um, protected by class statuses, uh, especially around disabilities, um, uh, older adults, children in foster homes. We have Jen De Dexter, who's here with us as a VP of National Health Council. Um, Jen, thank you so very much for coming. She comes with a background um, working with National Health Council, as well as its member organizations, to really develop policy positions that help people with chronic conditions, especially uh, in those classes that I've mentioned. But she also just has a, a, a true uh, background working in le with leaders um, in Congress and, um, and, and as a patient advocate uh, to especially work on Medicaid-based solutions that support um, the, the people who she's really very, uh, very moved to, to work on. She too has a Washington University connection. So um, if you didn't know each other before, um, Ariana and Jen, you'll certainly have to know each other now. So I'm going to just go ahead and, and very uh, quickly turn it over to each of the panelists. I'd like for you to you know, uh, introduce yourselves a bit more with respect to this work, but I especially want to invite um, Ariana to talk to us about, you know, what is redetermination policy? What, what is it? Why does it matter in general? And why does it especially matter now as we are, quote unquote, coming out of the pandemic um, and, and really foreseeing the end of the public health emergency? Yes, thanks, Mia. So, um, for those of you not as familiar, Medicaid redeterminations is something that happens very frequently, at least on an annual basis. Pre-COVID, it happened, you know, at least on an annual basis, the Medicaid population turns on and off coverage very frequently. At the beginning of COVID, so over three years ago at this point, that process was halted. And so the Medicaid population has not gone through renewing their coverage in over three years. The public health emergency has been renewed in 90 day blocks um, since March, 2020. And then at the end of 2022, the federal legislation, the Consolidated Appropriations Act of 2023 decoupled this continuous coverage requirement in Medicaid from the public health emergency. So starting April 1 in less than two weeks, Medicaid beneficiaries can start to lose their coverage. There are over 90 million Medicaid beneficiaries who are going to have to start going through renewing their Medicaid coverage over the next 14-ish months. States are going to determine their timelines. And so this is just an unprecedented caseload of Medicaid beneficiaries who are going to have to renew their coverage with the state. Some of those individuals are going to remain Medicaid eligible. The states are going to auto renew them into Medicaid. This is the ideal state. They're going to maintain their coverage. Many of those individuals are not going to be able to do that. The state's systems are not going to be able to process them. The individuals are going to have to take action to renew their coverage. And some people are no longer eligible for Medicaid. And so that's where us as a, medic, a managed care organization and others within the industry are really going to have to be educating individuals on the importance of taking steps to figure out either renewing their Medicaid coverage 
or what other alternative forms of coverage are available to them, either in the marketplace, employer-sponsored uh, insurance, or otherwise. So uh, there are a lot of steps that are needed to be taken. At the state level, there's a huge administrative burden on the states, and so educating individuals about what steps they need to take um, is extremely important, and having managed care organizations and others, other community-based organizations, um, being able to alleviate some of that on the states to try to make this as seamless as possible is going to be extremely critical. I mean, Ariana, you, you can't overstate just how big of a lift this is. And the fact that you mentioned this is an unprecedented situation, you know, it, it's not lost upon any of us. The fact that there are going to be people who are going to fall down the cracks, right? And, and that's what we're really trying to um, raise in, in terms of consciousness through this webinar. And I want to bring Dr. Isaac into the conversation to speak to that very point. Dr. Isaac, what, what does redetermination, and, and as, the, as Ariana has described the process and what, what the outlook is, what does that matter with respect to, uh, to equity? And, and, and if, you, if you wouldn't mind just giving us a working definition of what uh, equity in health means in this, in this, in this particular uh, conversation. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it, Mia. So thank you, Ariana, because I think Ariana set a really nice stage to the magnitude of the problem. What we're, what I would say CMS, which is Centers for Medicaid and Medicare Services, is estimating that up to 15 million people could lose eligibility um, for Medicaid during this process. And this is particularly dire in states that did not expand Medicaid Um during on, and under the ACA. So before says so some states who expanded it during um, COVID, which was great, they saw the need and but there's many who didn't and the many of those states are in the south. And what we know for equity is um, a lot of ethnic racial ethnic populations, Latinos, African American native populations, um, refugee immigrant populations are located in the south. And those are the folks who have been um, on these on Medicaid, and particularly what people have to understand is that during the public health emergency, we, I would say we we updated or we expanded who could be eligible for, for, for Medicaid, right? So we, we were very much um, a little bit more generous. And as Ariana said, um, we also didn't have people redetermined, right, within three years. So you're going to have a group of people now who are, who are not eligible for Medicaid because um, those states did not expand their Medicaid under the ACA. And then it's mostly impacting racial and ethnic populations. And the populations that we know were the most vulnerable during COVID, the ones who um, were essential workers and so who are had still work and who are still being exposed to, the, um, to, to COVID-19. So I also want to say like, COVID is not over people, right? And those same groups of people are still the ones that are being the most exposed. Yes, we've done a lot. We've done a lot of great work with vaccines to get people as safe as possible, but those are still the populations that are most vulnerable in this time. And so if they don't have health insurance coverage to get access to, as when the other thing too, when the public health emergency ends on May 11th, um, vaccines will no longer be free for everybody, right? So if they do not have coverage, and they need to get vaccinated or they need to get a booster, they may not be covered. Um, so we're also endangering people's health. So that's an equity issue in terms of getting people access to the care that they need to stay healthy and to prevent or reduce 
the effects of COVID-19 or flu or any other kind of um, uh, disease that's out there. So what we're really worried about, particularly right now, is that the populations most at risk are the populations that are the most vulnerable. And that's usually Latino, African-American, and immigrant populations that are located in these states that did not expand Medicaid. But the good thing I think that we need to know from, and I, um, Ariana made a really good point about what Centene and other organizations can do, is that many of these people will be eligible for ACA. And so knowing where your ACA navigators are, knowing how people can get coverage other places, knowing that they were dropped, that's the other problem too, is that some people may not even know they were dropped from Medicaid, um, and so think they have coverage and don't have coverage. So educating people about filling out the forms, looking for the letters, making sure their redeterminations have happened, and if they're not eligible, then finding some other source, hopefully, of health insurance on the exchange or some other um, ways, whether through employment or something else, will help us to, to, to think about making sure everybody has a fair access to the care they need. And that is the equity issue here, is everybody having fair access to the health care that they need. That right there alone is a soundbite, everyone having fair access to the care that they need, right? You're, both you and Ariana, Dr. Isaac, have truly set the stage um, with respect to why this matters, who's getting hit the hardest, and and why that will impact everyone, right? But I, I especially wanna bring Jennifer into the conversation to talk about, um, Jen, you work primarily with, um, with people with disabilities. Um, National Health Council also works on behalf of children and, um, and, and, and older adults. What does all of what Ariana laid out and what Dr. Isaac laid out, what does that mean in terms of your constituency, your organization's constituency, and then uh, what are the key steps that your organization is taking um, on behalf of the member organizations, you know, to ensure that that people are going to maintain coverage and, and know what's what's coming? Thank you, Mia. Absolutely. So, as you mentioned, the National Health Council is made up primarily of patient patient organizations focused on the needs of people with chronic conditions and disabilities. Um, and the Medicaid unwinding is particularly important to that population, um, A, because they are more likely to be in need of ongoing care immediately. Um, you know, somebody who doesn't have an immediate health need may not even realize they're off Medicaid for quite a while. Um, so more, more of a day-to-day -day dependence on having access to health coverage um, that Medicaid provides. Um, also, Medicaid is the primary source for many people for home and community-based services and long-term care. And that is something that um, I don't think people quite understand could go away with this. Um, so we're working um, in twofold, um, working through our member organizations, which is everybody from the really big patient advocacy organizations like American Lung Cancer, um, Diabetes, those kinds of groups down to very small rare disease groups to share information, um, particularly about patient-based communication. So making sure that we are all sharing information about um, social media and direct mail and other campaigns that we're undertaking to make sure people know what's coming and what they need to do. Um, but And from a health equity point of view, I think it's really important um, that we are making sure that that information is shared in a um, broad way. We have a, a broad base of organizations within membership. Um, for instance, Unidos US has done a tremendous job in putting together a ton of information um, in Spanish language format. Um, as a CMS, so don't get me wrong, but um, looking at various populations. And I think the other thing is that this is yet another 
situation where we need to identify who are the trusted voices in different communities. Um, the patient advocacy community is not the trusted voice, but a trusted voice for many people with that disease, with that issue. Um, you know, after their insurance company, the the helpline at the American Diabetes Association may be the second call they make when they run into trouble and need some advice. So we need to make sure that all of those organizations, call centers, are are working very hard and have the right information and referring people in the right way, working with industry like Centene and others um, to make sure there's information back and forth. On top of that, there's an advocacy piece of this, working with CMS, working with Congress, making sure that everything that needs to be in place around monitoring, around identifying issues. Um, we're working very closely with CMS to try and figure out when this starts rolling out and we start getting those calls of people losing their coverage. How are we going to make sure that that's communicated clearly? Um, because some people are gonna need help transitioning because they were appropriately uh, moving off of Medicaid and that happens as Ariana said, all the time. People move in and out of Medicaid all the time. Um, but there are going to be a whole lot of people, too, that run into an issue. Um, just even in the, the best case scenario, um, people are going to miss their mail. People are going to miss their call. They're going to have a bad address. All of these things that we're trying to prevent. But we need to identify those quickly, easily, and get that information um, out to people who can make a difference about it. Uh, I'll just remind everyone to, to uh, mute their mics. Uh when they're not speaking. And then also to the audience, please listen, you know, give me questions that you'd like for me to, to weave into the conversation, drop that below in the Q&A and keep the chat going and flowing uh, to the right or left of your screen, wherever it is landing for you. Um, you know, so for all three of you, each of you is talking about who is essentially at risk, right? Um, and then Jennifer, you brought in this element the significant point about trusted voices, right? And all of you have alluded to this, you know, who are those stakeholders that you all are engaging with through your organizations, through your work? Um, who are those? You've, you've mentioned some of the trusted voices, Jennifer, but if you can each expound on um, who are those, who are the stakeholders, who are the trusted voices, and how through each of you, each of your works, are you engaging with, uh, with Medicaid members and, and people who are, um, potentially not sure about their, you know, their status moving forward. I think one of the groups that, that we are worried about, lack of a better word, um, we know that one of the most trusted voices are the actual, for people with chronic diseases and disabilities, are their providers. It's the nephrologist, the rheumatologist, the person that they see regularly and work with regularly. Um, and that's also where people are going to like make that realization that they might have might have uh, an issue. Um, so that's something we're struggling with, honestly. But we need to identify who the who those voices are. Um, and I also think we've done so much work, um, particularly in the vaccine space, around working with non-health community-based organizations on on education and outreach. Um, this is going to be another area where we're going to have to rely on those relationships to get information out. I, I would say Brianna. for us, definitely, um, definitely providers uh, and pharmacists are are two of the big partners. Um, but we're focusing um, definitely on the provider piece and also understanding um, that the message needs to be. Uh, offered through 
multiple sources, trusted sources, um, but multiple sources, the same message through multiple modalities and frequently um, and understanding that it needs to be um, offered to the individual and meeting our members where they are. So all of our health plans are very uh, local and have connections with our community-based organizations. So each of them have, you know, a bespoke approach to how they're delivering messages. We do have centralized communications efforts and provider resources and call centers, but also tailored messaging. So some of our health plans are doing things like having people that are available to answer questions in a grocery store or a school where they know that people are going frequently and can be able to offer answers to questions, but then also having the other MCOs get all of the different larger provider groups that have uh, Medicaid patient panels offer the exact same messaging um, that the providers are giving that same messaging to all of their patients. Because one thing about this unprecedented time is that everyone across industry, and this is one hopeful point, across industry, across states, regardless of political dynamic, I think are at a very similar goal is to try to mitigate coverage loss and minimize churn where possible. And so I do think that that similar messaging in multiple touch points is trying to, is, is getting out there. So um, we're trying to get it to multiple sources. Um, but I think the, the providers and care team is, I totally agree um, with Jennifer there. Yes, thank you, Ariana and Jennifer. So, you know, at the National Urban League, we are affiliate an affiliated network of of uh, ninety two affiliates in thirty two states. And so, the the thing that I think we also need to recognize here that because um, I saw a question in the question and answer that this is there's no set date for everybody. We know April first the states can do return termination, but every state is doing it differently. That's part of the interesting part and the challenge of Medicaid and Medicare, but particularly Medicaid is that it is a federal program that is administered by the states. And so the reason why states not um, uh, expanding Medicaid is an issue because they didn't have to, right? And so those states that chose to ma mandate at, um, to expand Medicaid um, their requirements are more generous, and so there's going to be less people who are falling off these rolls. But the the folks that did not expand Medicaid, um, they're determining whenever they want, and they could they could start April first. And there's some states that they said are going to start April second, just disenrolling people, right? Um, and so, and there's some states that are trying to do a process that hopefully give people gives people some time to get their paperwork in answer the questions. And so to answer the question in the chat, that's part of the problem. There's no set date for every state. Every part of it is knowing what your state is doing. On the other hand, for us, because we have affiliates in every um, in every in 32 of the 50 states, what we've been messaging to our affiliates is that when your clients come in for housing counseling or for workforce development or any other um, services that we provide for vaccines, for education, for just help, um, if it's somebody that looks like they're, or even if they don't look like, you can tell by their information because they're getting information, could be Medicaid eligible, letting them know this information. Hey, did you check with this? Did you check with your your um case manager? Did you check with whoever? Have you looked through to make sure that you're still eligible? Or have you looked out for that letter? Because there's some states are sending letters, some people are sending emails, some people are like every state is also doing it very differently. And the redetermination is very different. And so just making our clients aware that this can happen and that they should be checking and that if they need help, that we can help them 
work through the process. And so it, it is about, I know CMS, I've been on actually some calls with the Centers for Medicaid and Medicare Services. They are trying also to continue getting the word out through different community-based organizations and trusted messengers that folks interact with. So that as Ariana was saying, they're getting it at multiple touch points. They're hearing it many times and saying, oh, okay, I need to pay attention to this. And I need to make sure that my redetermination is you know, either going forward or that I'm not disenrolled without my knowledge. And so, um, you know, but it's a tricky process because it is about making sure that people have to be proactive and informed in this in, in, in this action, because there are some eight states who are being proactive, but there's a lot of states who are, who just don't also, and, and in state's defense, they don't have the capacity, given the, the numbers, like Ariana was saying, they don't have the capacity or the ability to notify everybody beforehand or to, um, to make sure that everybody knows. And so there's, there's also a, 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 a point of, you know, kind of, a pressure point on states because of that this is happening. On the other hand, they can also just not de disenroll people, but that's another conversation we can have another day. <laughs> I, I should add that legislation at the end of the year does put some protections in place. Um, and the, it's, you know, it's a, it's a floor, not a ceiling, uh, but there are some things that states are required to do to help prevent some of this. Um, and I think it's very dependent on states' capacity and infrastructure and how they do it. But we were at least pleased to see that there were some minimum standards set for making sure they have up-to-date phone numbers and addresses and you know things like that that are really important um so i just wanted to, to add that to lessen people's anxiety a little bit but at least there that that floor is in place i, I have to yeah, say CMS, oh, after you ariana oh i was just going to say and cms is uh, definitely taking the authority that congress gave them um enforcement authority to heart and um, you know the updated contact information that states have to get the um, outreaching through multiple modalities in the event of return mail and um, CMS is working and providing technical assistance with states they're also requiring the states put in place mitigation strategies if they're not in compliance with all of the different federal requirements for conducting redetermination. So providing that data transfer, um, if someone is no longer eligible for Medicaid and doing the different um, checks for their eligibility status, um, they're doing all of those different steps as they, um, as they should be. And they're looking at the states and all of their different capabilities. And so I um, am hopeful that all the different oversights and, and what you mentioned previously, Jennifer, about like waving, waving the flag when we do see disenrollments happening or people, you know, those procedural disenrollments, which will occur um, happening and people being dropped. Um, CMS is, is on alert for those. So uh, some of those touch or stop points are, are in place. And so um, that, that is hopeful, but yeah, I mean, States also haven't gone through this process in three years. So the workforce shortages that they have and um, the administrative workload that they're going to have is, is just another added layer of challenge. Um, so lots of, I, lots of challenges to overcome. I think we shared in the chat, um, we've put together a compilation of a lot of the patient advocacy group and, and other groups of resources around redeterminations, uh, but also all the CMS guidance. Um, so if people want to look in one, and it's in the chat, so if people want to look in one place and see some of the 
the information, um, if you're looking for a specific state, that would be a place to go. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I me me not to um to oh, please, up, continue. But I just saw it in the question and answer. So CMS Centers for Medicaid and Medicare Services, they're the federal government that kind of oversees all this. And I I not to sound I didn't mean to sound doom and gloom. I appreciate Jennifer and, and Ariana come behind me. But yes, I mean, and there's also a lot of information that CMS has there. They have a tracker, they have a website for helping you find ACA navigators. There's a, a bunch of fact sheets on like what to do. And I know in the conversation I've been having, there are a lot of states that have been reaching out to CMS for help. And so it's so I would say the states are not going out there and just saying we want to drop people. It's just that with workforce shortages and with what's happening, it's just the volume is just something they can't handle that they've never handled before. And so that is really the, the major problem is that it just is a lot of people. And um, and then there was a question in the question and answer about well, what does somebody do if they can't afford ACA? That is actually what's what the CMS. I've I've actually been in a meeting with Secretary Becerra, who's the Secretary of Health and Human Services, and that's actually his um biggest concern is that group of people which we, we think is going to be between three and five million people who are not eligible for Medicaid anymore, who will not be able to afford ACA premiums and therefore will now become uninsured. Um, and we don't have, I'm going to be honest, he doesn't have a good solution for that. We don't. Um, but it is a group that he's worried about and he's trying to really think um, strategically about how we support and get those folks covered. You know, the... So I will say uh, the the chat is is I think it's disabled. It's being worked on. So for everyone who still wants to bring conversation forward as well as questions, just put it all in the Q and A. We'll manage it um, on on uh, on this other end. You know, but all of you are are talking to all of the players across the healthcare continuum. I know we have a number of people who themselves are providers. Um, who are on the call. We have people who are patient advocates. We have people who themselves are Medicaid recipients. We have people who are family members of those who are Medicaid recipients or dual eligibles or whomever. So many different people on this call. What is your charge to everyone? And maybe you want to call out specific groups. Uh, this question is for everyone. What is your charge to our audience in terms of how we can move the needle um, forward with respect to ensuring that people remain uh, under their insurance, and um, what are some some ways that you want to potentially be encouraging, but also very very firm with what has to happen? These are thoughtful pauses, but anyone can jump. I'll, in. <laughs> I'll start. I mean, I think this is really again the lessons we learned about talking to friends and neighbors. Um, so I think the CMS has developed great um, communication tools. Just simple little, you know social media posts, messages, um, whether you're an organization that has a communications arm and can use your social media platform, your newsletters, all of that to kind of help get the word out, that's really important. Um, but also talking to um, your friend, again, your friends and neighbors, um, just bringing it up, raising that information. If you're an individual advocate, making sure that you're talking to any organization that you're a part of, um, this is not a health silo information. This is something that, that should be in the general atmosphere um, and discussion area. Um, so I would encourage people to do that. Um, if people on the line are providers, I think it's really like doctors or nurses, uh, things like that. I think making sure that um, those offices, those folks at the pharmacy counters have easy messages um, that they can share is is really critical. 
It's talk, 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 and then feedback. Um, CMS has asked for hiccups. They want to know, they don't want specific, you know, my aunt Lucy tried to call and couldn't get through, but they want, what they want is trends. If we're hearing in a specific state, um, people are hitting snags and they kind of encourage people to do no wrong door. Um, so work through advocates, work through, you know, public lines, you know, information lines at CMS. Um, there are lots of resources to share that information when people see it. Ariana or Dr. Isaac, any addition there? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, Jennifer, I'm going to hit Jennifer's point again. It's, it's, it's education and for information and right information. You know, also we have to be careful that there's people out there who are not giving the right information. So make sure that folks are getting the right information, that they know that they, um, that getting, that they can still be eligible. That doesn't mean it's automatically just because you have to redetermine that you're not eligible. Redetermine just means re-looking at your documentation to make sure you're still eligible. And I think there's some people who are hearing this redetermination talk and thinking, oh my God, I'm not eligible anymore. They're just going to kick me off and then don't want to do it because they're scared that they're going to get kicked off. It's actually the exact opposite is to make sure which most of them will be that you're still eligible so you can stay on. And so just making sure that our communities understand that. And, and, and as we said, no wrong door. And we could keep on messaging to people. And I, I saw something in the Q&A and to multiple sources. So, you know, even if you're not in health, if you're doing housing work, if you're doing other advocacy work and you have clients that could possibly be eligible for Medicaid, letting them know to pay attention and that, you know, please get your paperwork in or, you know, answer the survey so that you can stay on Medicaid. I, I, I look at it as a positive. It's about keeping people on Medicaid and not about disenrolling them. But if they don't put their, their um, if they don't put their paperwork in, then they won't get to stay. When's, when's the deadline? It, yeah, it's, it's it changes. You answered that earlier, right? It depends yeah. on the state, right? Yeah. So um, for, for the person who raised that question, oh, please, Ariana. Oh, I was just going to say, and I mean, it's it's cyclical. So it's just one of the challenges and that we're, you know, you're towing this line of wanting to provide the education and also not cause panic. So some states have, are not starting disenrollments until July, but the individual may not go through the renewal process until December. And um, so you know, they need to be updating their contact information, but they may not have to fill out renewal forms until later in the fall. So it's education and awareness about kind of the process as a whole is extremely important. So education and understanding, I think is totally critical and having the no wrong door and also completeness of the information is important. There's also a 90 day reconsideration period in Medicaid. So if somebody did get disenrolled and is still eligible, and then they go to the pharmacy and they get denied because their coverage did lapse and they're within that 90 day period, they can get renewed in a faster um, sequence and they can get renewed faster back onto their coverage. So there are some also hopeful pieces to it where if somebody is using coverage you know they they could get back onto coverage so there is a lot of nuances and I totally agree on the not thinking of it as a disenrollment piece most individuals are going to be renewed back onto Medicaid 
as opposed to being ushered to alternative coverage. And um, so I think having all those different stakeholders, having the information and having the completeness of the information is going to be really critical. Um, and, and knowing where to send people to sending, I probably got irrationally excited. I filled a prescription and I saw like signs, like, are you Medicaid or CHIP beneficiary? You may need to renew your coverage. And, you know, just having something like that, that's a helpful reminder and directing someone to Medicaid.gov and, um, and directing someone to the state and just where they can call and get some information and talk through the process, get their contact information, know that they're going to be receiving forms and read through the forms. Um, it just, it's just it's helpful um, to understand that they're going to have to be going through a process, um, but not having that contact information and not having um, not receiving that information in the first place is going to be um, a huge hurdle. So for that 90-day period, Ariana, you mentioned a reconsideration. Say, for instance, someone presented for care and maybe they didn't know that they needed to redetermine their status or their redetermination had not yet been processed, right? Will, will they receive a bill for presenting for care? Um, it probably depends on which tier of Medicaid, and we can probably get you some additional information on that, but... Um, they should, it should get sent to the, um, their former coverage is my understanding, but we can follow up with some additional information on that. I think it depends on which tier of Medicaid they were covered on. Mm-hmm. That's also my understanding. I, I wanted to, to ask each of you, you know, so in March of 2020, which for the U.S., many people consider that to be the start of COVID-19, right? In, in earnest, right? That's when uh, companies shut their doors for the most part. That's when remote work became uh, pretty much the standard um, for so many different people, right? We also saw by, by starting certainly in March, but really by the end of that year, uh, reports of, you know, to get back to those who have been impacted the most during COVID, we saw reports of um, for instance, Navajo Nation being hit the hardest, more so than any other state across the nation, being hit with the with the highest infection rates with respect to COVID-19 for so many reasons, right? And many of those reasons, uh, of course, predate COVID and have to, everything to do with social determinants of health. Um, knowing that and knowing about Medicaid rates um, amongst American Indians and Alaska Natives, what are some truly... Um, thoughtful and significant strategies that either your organizations are uplifting to ensure that um, particularly American Indians and Alaska Natives are um, receiving information that's necessary, but then also our partners in in ensuring that the message is being sent. Um, What are you you seeing and and what should work and what, what hasn't worked in the past? Or if, if there are organizations that, that you see have been doing really great work with American Indians and Alaska Natives prior to COVID and certainly during, let's uplift their names in this space as well. I'll take the first stab at it um, in that, um, you know, I think particularly 
what worked, there was another question in the chat, I'm going to tie them both in together, what worked particularly well in, in, in during the COVID-19 pandemic, and it's something you said, um, I think Mia, you said earlier, is, or it might have been Jennifer, I can't remember, but saying about meeting people where they're at. And I think sometimes we, um, and that was a lesson that we learned that uh, that we used also in our communities is that sometimes we just think, oh, if we put it on social media, oh, if we make a flyer, oh, if we tell people to go to a website, they'll know. And, you know, there's, lo there's lots of people for many reasons who don't know. They're either elderly and are, are not connecting with, with the internet and the web that way. They don't have broadband access, so they're not, they're, they're not able to connect with high-speed um, ways. There's literacy issues, both not only in different languages, which is, but also just level of people's health literacy. And so one of the things I, I, and I don't know the organization's name and I apologize, I know that happened during the, the, with the Navajo Nation when they started realizing how bad their rates were is that they organized within themselves and a group came up and started doing some navigation work. And they basically used community health workers to come in and, you know, also because there's a trust issue, at, right, rightfully so, um, particularly on reservations. You know, the other thing with, if you're talking about um, Native Americans on reservations, um, their health care is through the Indian Health Service. It's not through. So that's another barrier that they would that they have to deal with. And so we saw some really great programs that came through where um, folks organize themselves and use community health workers to go out to these to particularly um, those nations that are in rural areas um, that, that that the Indian Health Service doesn't have as much of a reach and did some one on one going to folks home and saying, hey, how are you feeling? What do you need? Can I get you vaccinated? What questions can I answer? And what we learned from the COVID-19 um, pandemic and working with our communities, we also had community health navigators was that it takes a lot of conversations. One conversation is not enough. Sometimes it takes up to 17 conversations for people to really either change their mind or get informed the way they, they, they did. So I think Jennifer's point of constant, 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 and Ariana's point of we have to get this message out there, but we have to meet people where they are. We have to understand that people are scared and and don't understand knowledge always the way that we did. And we have to talk about it in different ways, coming from different angles, using different language um, to help inform people so they can make the best decision for themselves. So it's really about getting out there in the community and not just sitting on a perch somewhere and thinking like, okay, we can just put it out on social media and they'll know. That's just not how it happens. Um, and, and particularly in vulnerable communities, I think particularly in communities that may be isolated. I think we also have to think about native populations that they're not just on our reservations. Actually, cities have some of the biggest populations of um, uh, particularly Native Amer uh, American populations. And so making sure that our urban centers understand that this is a population they're trying to, that they have to reach in a very different way, that you can't just say, oh, we're just going to go to reservations and that's where they are. That's actually not true. New York City has one of the largest populations of, of Native people in the country. And so we have to make extra efforts in our urban centers to reach our, our Native folks. And then, you know, Alaska Natives and, um, you know, uh, folks in addition to Hawaii is a separate kind of outreach, but there's a cultural outreach that has to happen in those communities also. But yeah, I totally agree. With you. Um, I think, yeah, you guys are a great example. Like, you know, if you, if you talk about Urban League, you don't immediately think healthcare. You think lots of, I mean, it's one of many issues. I mean, um, and I think that um, there is a need to really engage some of the more um, kind of just community advocacy-based organizations in healthcare broadly. I mean, this is a great opportunity. Vaccinations were a great opportunity to develop those relationships and keep them going long-term. Don't drop in, drop out. Um, it doesn't work that way. You're absolutely right, Lydia. 
Um, and I also think that there is an opportunity here with a younger generation uh, who I think in some ways is much more engaged in identity politics, kind of, you know, uh, of understanding who they are, um, not necessarily for themselves, but to be advocates and talk to their family members, their, you know, aunts and grandparents and, and all of that, to be the voices to get the word out there, um, using organizations that are advocates for different communities um, that younger people might be more connected to, I think is a good thing. I really appreciate uh, people in the chat are uplifting the, the names of the organizations that um, had been helpful in the ground. So CORE, the Community Organized Relief Effort, was certainly involved in a lot of that, um, what, what Dr. Isaac was, was talking about, who and, and other organizations that uh, someone else lifted in the chat. You know, I, wanted, I want to ask you all um, a couple more questions, and then we're going to have some, some closing remarks. We've talked about this from the patient perspective. We've, we've mentioned this from the provider perspective. We have members of, of, the, of the audience who are themselves representative of industry. Why does this matter? You know, what are the services that you envision um, really being hit hardest uh, with respect to redetermination? And, and what are some things that uh, you might want to say to, uh, to members who are thinking about it from, to audience members who are thinking about it from that perspective? In terms of what Medicaid services might be mm -hmm. most mm -hmm. effective? Wow. All of them. It's a hard answer because when you yeah. lose service, I think one of the things that is important in all of this and in the communication piece is understanding um, what what services are Medicaid. I think there's a lot of people out there who don't know they're on Medicaid, honestly. Um, you know, even down to like, oh, I'm on, you know, Buckeye Care or whatever it's called in Ohio or, you know, those kinds of things. Um, so making sure they even understand that. And I think then as people who are transitioning off Medicaid, um, the difference between what they might have in Medicaid and what they might have once they move to a plan through the, you know, through the ACA with subsidies that would might cost them the same, might be, you know, still be no, no premium for them, um, what they get, the difference between what's covered under Medicaid and what isn't, I think kind of understanding that is tough. Um, you know, the lack of coverage for home and community-based services and long-term care and those kinds of things, so. Yeah, that's literally the answer to that question. Everybody is impacted by, by this conversation, right? That's the hardest part. Um, there, there are major takeaways, I imagine, that each of you, um, are thinking about, you know, as you said, redetermination is nothing new. It happens all the time, except for these last three years where, you know, it's just been extended on, on account of the public health emergency. But what are some, some takeaways, some lessons that, that each of you anticipate from this unwinding process that could potentially be, be thought about in terms of long-term improvement? Um, well, I'm... So a couple things. Well, one thing I just wanted to mention, um, and this won't be the case in all cases, but you know the enhanced uh, subsidies that at least now are going through 2025, and you know we're hopeful will be made permanent. Will hopefully offset some of the um, cost sharing on the exchange. So some of the Medicaid beneficiaries who may become exchange eligible could qualify for those 
um, those enhanced premium tax credits. So that's one thing that I think just based on what you were just saying, Jennifer, I think goes to navigators and other um, back to what you were saying, needing to have a whole understanding of the complete picture of what is needed and, and what people are going to be qualified for in the education piece. But in the long-term sense, I think uh, we've touched on a lot about what CMS is doing uh, to improve state systems and mitigate uh, coverage loss by transferring um, eligibility status and trying to improve uh, how renewal processes work. And there's a lot of work to understand and improve the enrollment eligibility process, how we're collecting contact information, conducting outreach. And this is industry why this is not specific to insurance or states this is this is across the board in in the industry broadly and so i think that there's just a lot of hope um on on our end that this is going to be long-term improvements to help streamline how individuals are learning about seeking out coverage maintaining coverage um, conducting enrollment and eligibility processes and being able to maintain coverage. Um, so I think there's a lot of improvements that are going to be made and learning that will happen during this process and hopefully be improved upon during the process and then, um, you know, momentum that will be maintained throughout. That lost the point to use the word hope twice now, Ariana, which I love. <laughs> Go ahead, Jennifer. Friday. There we go. <laughs> I totally agree with you, Ariana. I think this is um, as painful and as hard and as big a lift that this is going to be, and as many hiccups as there are going to be. Um, you know, in a in a good case scenario, we come out of the other side of this with the Medicaid system that is just a little bit better. I mean, getting that communication and getting everybody's addresses and phone numbers and you know, communication channels, right, um, that people are working on right now uh, in such a hard way uh, will serve the system well in the long run if they can keep it up and, and keep going. Um, that's something that's, you know, always, always a struggle for states. Um, and I agree with you, Ariana, the, the improvements and the practice um, and experience we'll have with moving people between Medicaid and other coverage options with assistance. Um, will help people move particularly there's a big part of the population that moves in and off of medicaid all the time I and mean, that's just you know you're you're on that edge of the income eligibility you move back and forth um depending on you know your year you, know, you got a job you didn't get a job um we need to get better about helping those people making sure they don't have gaps in coverage and that they're they're appropriately getting the support they need and this will help that so that's an opportunity too so uh, I'll, I'll ditto everything. And I also think it's a great opportunity to have states rethink um, how they do things. But also, I, you know, as I said before, just been in conversations with CMS and it's also having some states rethink if they don't want to expand Medicaid, right? And so I, I think this, as painful as it's going to be, it is going to make some states say, you know what, 
maybe we might want to consider expanding Medicaid just a little, even if not the same way that other states are to, to help these populations. And we're seeing it. It's been put on ballots. People are voting for it. And so, um, you know, hopefully, I'm, I'm going to use the hope word again, out of the pain, you know, like the Phoenix We Rise, like comes some really um, great kind of um, resources and changes for populations that are most vulnerable. And, and, and that's, that's my hope, even in this painful period. I, I too am hopeful. Uh, and <laughs> I'll keep, I'll keep that trend going. Um, but you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, we, we've recently seen uh, the state of North Carolina's expanded Medicaid, right? And um, hopefully mm -hmm. that trend is not uh, going to going to slow, you know, especially like you said, because of what's happening as we approach the end of the public health emergency. You know, one of the things, I, Jennifer, I was thinking about what you mentioned earlier about people not necessarily thinking um, on its head about an organization like the National Urban League being really a health oriented organization, right? And it gets me to thinking back to the 1960s, before Medicare and Medicaid had even been. Uh, ratified into law. It was it was up to organizations like the National Urban well National Urban League leaders mm -hmm. at least those who 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 helped to push uh, health and health equity and health disparities as a civil rights and and health you know healthcare as a right as a civil rights movement core strategy right. So um, I bring that up to say you know 1965 was when Medicaid was you know became the milestone for the nation's health, health, um, health insurance plan, right, um, for, for the indigenous and, and, and those who had previously not been covered. But it's, it's had to really live so many lives since 1965. Who could have ever anticipated a major pandemic like, uh, like COVID-19 after the 1918 influenza or, you know, the 20... 14 Ebola crisis, which was more like an epidemic as opposed to a pandemic, and so many other tuberculo uh, tuberculosis in the early uh, 1900s, all of these other things that Medicaid and, and, the, and, and the civil rights leaders and, and the, the patient advocates and the congressional champions, none of them could have anticipated what we'd be looking at today in terms of the healthcare needs of a nation that is increasingly diverse racially and ethnically so, age, people are living for a lot longer because that's a point too. People who established Medicare and Medicaid weren't necessarily, and Social Security weren't necessarily thinking about people living as long, right? I promise this diatribe is going somewhere. My question to you is, what does this mean? If, if we were to be talking about Medicare and Medicaid 20 years from now, 50 years from now, 100 years from now, what is your vision uh, in terms of takeaways from this moment that we don't want to have, you know, uh, we don't want to see still living in the future, but but we need to see grow in terms of uh, how Medicaid um, serves us as a nation. Big hopeful question. I, I I mean I think really it's it's the same thing that we've had happening over the last several years after the ACA after living through a pandemic. All of these things I think we're learning more and more as a nation around the bedrock importance of access to healthcare in an affordable, accessible way. And we need to have all of the pieces in place. So I think what we're seeing is the importance of not having the gaps that we have now um, of people who are falling through the cracks or not covered. Um, and we need to kind of commit to working together to making sure that we are kind of completing the puzzle. We are making sure we're filling in all those missing pieces um, 
in whatever way makes the most sense, whether it's subsidies for ACA coverage, whether it's expanding Medicaid, whether it's, you know, making sure Medicare is complete and complex for, for people with all sorts of needs. Um, the spotlight has been shown on the need. Um, we still have a long way to go to, to meet that, that goal, but I think we're, we're making progress. I think um, the pandemic shed light on what I'm guessing that everyone on this call already knew existed and um, existing health disparities and health inequities and then just exacerbated them. And so I'm hoping that the momentum of the healthcare industry to help improve and try to close coverage gaps, try to mitigate health inequities um, and an attention to health inequities broadly, um, whether it is increasing access to affordable and quality care or looking more broadly in things like coverage um, challenges in certain geographic areas or housing or insecurities in different aspects beyond healthcare and how all of those intersections feed into things, including health. Um, I think that that momentum is strong coming out of the pandemic. And so I'm hopeful that this is just kind of the first steps that moving forward out of the pandemic, looking ahead 10, 50, 100 years from now, we'll be able to look back and, and see a lot of progress made from learnings that, you know, we had from this period in time. So is trying to get me in trouble on a national webinar, but that's okay, because I'm going to say it anyway. If you're talking 20, 50, 100 years out, I think this, what the pandemic has showed us, and I think what this process right now is showing us, is that we need to make sure everybody's covered. And a way to get everybody covered is some type of universal health care. So I'm going to say it. I know people don't like you to said it. it. I'm going you to say it. it. I'm going to get in trouble for it. And it's okay. Um, and that doesn't mean that it has to be government sponsored. No, it doesn't. But it means that everybody, we saw particularly in the pandemic as people were losing jobs and losing their coverage and then getting sick. Um, that was a wonderful thing about the way the, the federal government actually expanded determination for Medicaid is to get people quickly onto Medicaid who lost jobs because normally it takes you, you have to use it the, the, the last year's W-2s and all this other stuff, but we, we they made exceptions if you could, you know, prove that you, you lost coverage, blah, 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 all that stuff. They got people on Medicaid really quick. And that was really important for saving people's lives, particularly early when we did not have vaccines. And so if we're really talking about equity and making sure that people have fair access and they can support their health in the way they need, we need to not have people lose coverage, period. Period. And the way to do that is some sort of universal coverage. However we organize it, that's fine, but we shouldn't be having this issue where people are worried that we're going to have a 5 million people that may not have any kind of coverage. That's 100 years from now. I'm not talking about tomorrow. I know that's not going to happen tomorrow. I'm realistic. But I do think if we're going to learn a lesson 20, 50, 100 years from now, that's the lesson we need to learn. These are hard lessons to learn and certainly harder topics to discuss, but I'm so very grateful to be um, really filling this space with you all in this historical moment. Um, and I'm, I'm so proud of the work that each of you stands for and are pursuing in your individual uh, 
um, roles, but then also as a collective part in, in bringing, bringing your work to this collective conversation through the National Minority Equality Forum. I'm, I'm going to ask you all to just give 30 second closing remarks if you have any, and then I will remind those who are still um, a part of the live audience here and those who are going to watch in the future, this is recorded. And so you can come back and engage with this over and over again. The transcript should be available via the uh, NMQF YouTube um, channel, if I'm not mistaken. But uh, let me go ahead and, and open this up. Um, Jennifer Dexter, um, VP Policy, National Health Council, closing remarks from you, please. Just thank you so much. Um, I think the more we have these conversations, the more people we engage, the more um, diverse and interesting partnerships we develop to get the word out around this and other health issues, um, the better we'll be. So thank you so much for having us. Thank you for being here. Ariana Muckerman, Senior Director, Health Policy at Centene Corporation. Yeah, thank you for having me. Uh, our healthcare system is highly complex and so helping to navigate it and ensure people are not losing coverage and can maintain access is going to be critical. So thank you all for delivering that message. Really appreciate you breaking it down the way you have today. And last but not least, Dr. Lydia Isaac, VP of Health Policy, Health Equity and Policy at the National Urban League. I would just say meet our communities where they are. Make sure that you're giving people information in ways that they understand and that it's resonating with them and that we don't all have to be an expert on everything. You know, I saw the conversation about uh, American Indians and that, uh, and American Native Americans, Alaska, Native. Alaska Natives. I'm not from that community. I can't say the best thing for that community, but we have folks on the call who are from that community who can help us to partner and learn more. So just remember partnerships, meeting people where they are communicating with our communities as much as possible to, to help them get access to the to whatever it is that they need to live a healthy life. And, and I will ditto all three of, of, of the participants of the panelist conversation. I'll also remind you all to make sure to, uh, to tune into NMQF's Friday conversations, but then also register for the, uh, the Health Leadership Summit, which is coming up, as Brenda mentioned, at the top of the call on April 17th and 18th. Um, and for those of you who want more information, just visit the NMQF website. I will certainly be there um, as I, as I uh, try to be there all the time. I'm Mia Keys, and with Hologic, I serve as the Director of Health of, 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 of Government Affairs, and I'm always going to be available to NMQF to uplift important conversations like this. So thank you once again to everyone, to the audience. Hope you all have a great weekend.